It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. You know, I'm starting to believe that I these believe days. It. Well, no, but you still have to say and, and bloom. That's we right. will talk about some good, happy things, some things to take care of you and your family, not just what's up in the world. That's right. Well, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. It's a heck of a place in a hell of a world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostess. Our mission, to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Together, we are the watchers on the wall. And we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else, or when everything else, it seems like, falls apart. Sad. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a pernicious poodle? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. That's one heck of a poodle. I'll say. <laughs> all right. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to please seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And you know, on that note, I just the second finished reading about a couple mm -hmm. who were posting on Facebook that their 19-month-old child had a problem. I haven't gotten into exactly what the issue was. This is more about what the uh, judge asked the wife to do, the mother to do, was to post his judgment on their social media. Apparently, they had a hmm. Facebook account for what was going on with their son, and people kept telling them, you need to take the child to the doctor. Apparently, the father had opened up a supplement company. Oh, boy. Yes with vitamins and all these kinds of things. And so they were using garlic, and the judge mentioned a couple other things that they were doing. 
Um, but they did not take their child to the doctor. And apparently the father, according to the judge, has shown zero remorse for the death of his child. Oh, boy. Well, you know so, what? So seek modern and standard medical care, please, folks. That's using all the tools in the woodshed. You can use supplements and things like that, but don't ignore don't the importance of modern medical care. It's here. It does save lives. It, it, especially children, because a child cannot make the decision. It's one thing if it's your body and you decide what you're going to do with it. I support you completely. You know, whatever you want to do. But when it is a child, anyone under the age of 18, it is your responsibility as a parent to make sure that that child gets to a doctor. Whether or not you believe in doctors, whether or not you believe that modern medicine is helpful, you have to take the child to a practicing medical professional. Please, please, please. That's right. Hey, what's the gist, physicist? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us. It is easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Please feel free to contact us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages. There's Doom and Bloom and... Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Page. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. And we have another podcast called American Survival Radio, which is all about current events. And boy, have there been a lot of current events. I'll say. Crazy things are happening. Um, so we talk about that and some opinions. And that's at GCNlive.com. Exactly. You can find it there. You can also find it at AmericanSurvivalRadio.com. Or on the sidebar of doomandbloom.net. There you go. I've got a RSS feed. So we also have a live video cast twice a month. It's on the first and third Wednesdays of every month at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And that is aroundthecabin.com. And don't forget our brand new spanking new third edition, third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, now available on Amazon. 700 pages, 150 topics, <sighs> all about when help isn't on Crazy. the way. Crazy. And if you're not sure what book you're looking at on Amazon, look for the red medical kit in the middle of the road with the white cross. That's how you know it's the right one. <laughs> uh, we also have a book out on Zika. Zika is starting to become more of an issue in this country. Uh, we already know it's a problem in other countries, especially Rio de Janeiro, the place of the Olympics in, gee, like just one month now. Yeah, welcome to hell. Yeah, that's what the sign says from the police officers, welcome to hell. Um, but anyway, both subjects you might benefit from knowing a little bit about, so and uh, we're here to help educate you guys. That's right. So the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way, and the Zika Virus Handbook, a doctor tells you all you need to know about the epidemic. Well, wow. Well, that is a lot of stuff. So believe me, if you guys are looking for content regarding survival medicine, you will find us with uh, find it with us. Absolutely. Hey, where are we going to be? Where are we going to be? In the near future. Wow. Let's see. We have South Carolina coming up. Well, oh. Oh, let's talk about our local one. Yes. Next Saturday, which is July 16th, at our warehouse where all of our medical bags are hand-packed and custom-designed, 
we are doing a suture class inside the warehouse. You will see doom and bloom. <laughs> um, the suture class is at 10 a.m. If you want to find out more information about that, doomandbloom.net. Go to the classes tab, click on that, and scroll down. You will see July 16th for Weston, Florida, which is where our warehouse is located and Absolutely. where we live. After that, we have July 30th and 31st, and we're going to be in Columbia, Columbia South Carolina. Right. And we've got a lot of folks that have already signed up for the suture class. Apparently, people really want to know how to take care of wounds and. But and we'll have all our right. We'll have all our other stuff too. We'll be doing free lectures. Yeah, well, so. you're going to do a free lecture on sure. Saturday. Absolutely. So lots and lots of stuff there. And we're going to drive so. there, which is awesome. We don't have to yes. get on a plane. That's yeah, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yay! Scary. Florida's a really long state, but South Carolina is right after, so that's good. <laughs> Well, the U.S. is experiencing more active shooter events. Gosh, well, law enforcement officers even being the most recent targets. Eleven officers were killed or wounded, five killed, I believe, in the latest attack in Dallas. It's getting pretty clear that we're at war with those people that are wanting to cause harm to Americans, whether they're ISIS sympathizers or those who just want to kill people of a certain race, like in Texas. Or, or, or just the fact that they're police officers. Or, heck, just a disgruntled employee that got a bad performance review. Who knows? Wow. People are crazy. That's true. Not all people. The people who shoot other people are crazy. You know, as a physician, my focus is how to heal wounds rather than how to cause wounds. But a domestic or foreign terrorist has very, very different goals. They have a short window of opportunity normally. Their focus is to cause as many casualties as possible during their, hopefully, brief remaining time on Earth. Now, I've been doing a lot of radio interviews lately about what to do in active shooter situations, and my standard answer has been the same as that, that given by the Department of Homeland Security. That's run, hide, fight in that order. And in most cases, this makes a lot of sense. Just as stop, drop, and roll could save the life of someone on fire, run, hide, fight could save the life of somebody under fire. And that's the order of the actions I've been recommending in recent articles on the website doomandbloom.net regarding active shooter situations. Now, the sequence of actions is based on the expected lifespan of the event. And the attacker in an active shooter event is going to want to do his damage quickly and get it over with. Most active shooter events, and therefore, are over in just a few minutes. And so following run, then hide, then fight paradigm, that is most often effective in these short-term events. If you've hidden effectively you're going to probably be passed by for more uh, easily obtained targets. Now, when potential victims put distance between themselves and the shooter by running, that's a good idea. They make themselves a more difficult target than someone laying on the ground two feet in front of the gunman. So run if you can. When targets remove themselves from the line of sight of the shooter by hiding in a different room with a barrier against the door, well... He's going to look for what I said were easier victims. Now, fighting back is usually recommended as a last resort. It's certainly a superior strategy to closing your eyes and taking a bullet to the head. But the Orlando shooting is a little was a little different. This took a full three hours before the threat was neutralized, and the amount of time gave the gunman plenty, plenty of opportunities to seek out people that were hiding, often in bathroom stalls, and make casualties out of those that would have survived if the event had been terminated more quickly. Now, I'm not a 
SWAT team member. I'm just an old sawbones, so I can't comment on the time it took for SWAT team members to abolish the threat in that event. I assume it had to do with concern about hostages, the safety of the team, and these are all perfectly reasonable concerns. Now, I've seen accounts of brave individuals helping people out of the building and in that event. It certainly saved lives, but there weren't any 9-11, Flight 93, let's roll moments in Orlando, which indicated that some of the bar's patrons might have tried to stop the killing by dropping the attacker. That didn't happen. Now, I have to admit that I don't know if that would have helped in Texas at all. Civilians rushing the attacker, I mean, these guys were obviously trained for either former military or reservists. I'm not sure what they were. Uh, the large number of people there were out in the open, so it makes the most sense for the unarmed individual to put distance between the attacker and themselves. That is indeed the right strategy. But in a situation where civilians are trapped in an enclosed space like Orlando, this does disturb me. I mean, it's thought that the government fired off 200, 200 rounds, something that would have required reloading magazines into the rifle multiple times, and that means that there were spaces of time where, indeed, the gunman could have been dropped. Uh, this was actually a rifle also by, that the government had bought just a couple of weeks beforehand. It certainly didn't have a lot of experience with it. There had to be a number of opportunities to intervene in the killing and end the event. This didn't happen, though, and the casualties as a result were a record for the lone gunman that was involved. Now, <clears throat> this is a problem because the success of this terrorist attack could serve as a blueprint, should serve as a blueprint if these terrorists are smart, for her future attacks. I mean, if there's an exit to run through, it's still the best option, in my opinion. You always have to be situationally aware. you got to mentally mark where those exits are anytime you're in a crowd. But if a gunman has three hours to find you, is hiding really the next best thing to do? If somebody was given three hours to find you in your house or maybe your place of work, what do you think of their chances? They're probably pretty good. So this leads me to think that in the Orlando shooting, at least, fighting back would have cut down significantly on the casualties. So why did some of the 300 young, able people in the bar not take that option? I mean, it's not as if the objective of the gunman wasn't clear. Uh, I actually saw an FBI law enforcement bulletin that reviewed a number of active shooter cases. They found that a, a pretty good minority of them were stopped by civilians before law enforcement arrived, and most of these civilians were unarmed and stopped the casualty count from rising by taking action. So why doesn't every event like this end with civilians taking out the gunman? Well, it all comes down to the natural paralysis that occurs when something happens foreign to the average person's thought process. I mean, we're all victims of normalcy bias. That means that we believe the events of the day are going to follow a certain pattern because guess what? They always have. Now, when this pattern is broken by an atrocity, well, the human brain can't process it or process it, a very, sl processes it very slowly. There's denial, there's hesitation, and you know what? That makes for a very soft target. So becoming violent is not in the mindset of the average person in most scenarios, and I think that's a pretty reasonable statement. But there are circumstances where violence is the answer. Now, of course, if some of the folks in Orlando were armed, it might have been something easier They might, if they were trained to use the weapon to do that. I'm not saying that it's a great idea for 300 people in a bar to be carrying loaded weapons. An unarmed citizen still can make a difference. And are there really unarmed citizens in this circumstance? This is a bar. There were bar glasses. There were probably bottles. There were at least 300 cell phones. I can tell you that much. And just imagine what would have happened if four or five people had 
actually charge this guy from different directions, throwing all this stuff at the at him at the same time. I mean, this guy isn't James Bond. He would have been disconcerted by it all. He would have ducked. He would have flinched. And he would have had to make decisions as to who to shoot if he had a few people coming at him from different directions. And you know what? He would have been dropped. I'm not saying that someone might not have been killed attacking him, but the fatalities would have been held to a minimum and the event would have ended with a lot less loss of life. Now, you're going to say that this is a terrible strategy is doomed to failure. Well, three unarmed men were able to stop a shooter on a train in Paris last year without any fatalities. It might be extreme, but sometimes violence is necessary to prevent worse violence. I recently saw a video of lions taking down a water buffalo. Now, there were a few other water buffalo around, and sure enough, a couple of them charged the lions, actually flipped one high into the air, and ended the attack. Now, when a herd takes action, the prey has a better chance of surviving. Now, it's time for us to decide we're not going to be soft targets for these mass murderers. It'll take a major change in mindset to do it, but it might just save some lives in the end, your life maybe, the lives of friends, lives of loved ones. Prepare physically and mentally to both avoid and confront these situations with commitment. We might see a little more reluctance on the part of those who wish harm to decent people. What about situations where a disaster has occurred and the rule of law is no longer in place? Well, in these survival scenarios, the family or group that's smart is going to have medics in place for general issues, but also for the, hopefully, rare gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, here's a tweet for you. I am dying. That was a tweet posted by a young woman, 21 years old, named Olesa Zukovskaya, who volunteered to function as a medic during the Ukrainian uprising in 2013. There were police snipers. They were targeting medics marked with red crosses and journalists. And sure enough, she was struck in the neck by a bullet. Now, looking at this, we see that there are long-term survival scenarios in which civil unrest and other events may put the group medic, sure enough, in harm's way. This could involve situations where the medic's with his group or her group in foraging operations or simply at base camp when hostile forces arrive. That's what happened in Ukraine. Our young medic might have thought her Red Cross identified her as a non-combatant and made her somehow immune to enemy fire. Well, despite the Geneva Convention, that's ridiculous, couldn't be farther from the truth. Eliminating the medics, that's a great way to decrease the effectiveness of a group and certainly a terrible, terrible, devastating hit to morale. Therefore, a basic piece of advice is to avoid wearing a big white armband with a red cross. U.S. military medics today wear a much less noticeable insignia. Now, doing the right thing at the right time is a cornerstone of tactical combat casualty care. Now, this is different, though, from what you might consider to be the practice of good medicine. In an unsafe environment, good medicine could be very bad tactics, and that could get people killed. So this poses a question, should medics be armed? Now, an important goal in this case is to do what? Is to abolish the threat. And that means helping to provide suppressive fire if needed. You can't do that if you're not armed. The best way to protect casualties under fire is to eliminate the enemy that is shooting at them and at you, or at least keeping hostile heads down and weapons silent. Now, this tactic is pretty hard for the medic to swallow. Of course, a medic in general will want to attend to wounded members immediately. But without dealing with the threat, they're likely to become the next casualty if they run into the line of fire. Now, history shows us that this was a very common way for the medic to meet 
their demise, and sometimes on the way to evaluate casualties that were already without a chance for survival. Now, a second issue for the medic is that many of the tools used to evaluate a victim will be useless in a firefight. Forget trying to listen to a casualty's heart or lungs with a stethoscope if there's heavy gunfire. Forget about using a headlamp at night to treat the wounded. It might as well become a bullseye. And so under fire, your priorities may be a little different. Number one, your priorities should be to abolish or suppress the threat. Two, avoid exposure to enemy fire while attempting to reach a casualty. Three, get the casualty and yourself to reasonable cover, not concealment, cover. Use Four, use your tourniquet along with direct pressure and other hemostatic blood clotting methods to stop heavy bleeding when appropriate. That's the most likely reason that somebody's going to die in this situation. And five, figure out a way to transport your victim and yourself away from hostile forces. Notice that I didn't talk about airway management, cervical spine immobilization. This is, these are very basic steps in evaluation, care, and transport of trauma victims in normal environments. Now, stabilization of the spine is good medicine, but control of hemorrhage is going to be the most likely way you'll save a life in this scenario. You don't have the luxury of time to do much else, especially if you're under fire, and that is something that's very important to realize. Something that was clear to us in these settings was the importance of cross-training. Everybody in your group should know how to apply a tourniquet correctly to themselves and others, as well as other basic hemorrhage control strategies. If the medic is the wounded party, the ability to give instructions to others could save a life, and I'm talking about yours. Now, if you're the medically responsible member in the group, think about what you would tell other group members to do if you were bleeding or broke a bone or were sick. I mean, the more people that know how to deal with these medical issues, the higher the chance that the group will succeed in surviving even if everything else fails. By the way, our Ukrainian medic was transported to the hospital, and indeed, she survived. Now, you'd think that people wouldn't put themselves in harm's way just for fun, but it happens every year in Spain. The news reports that four people were injured in falls, but luckily no one was gored, as more than a thousand thrill-seekers tested their agility and their courage by racing alongside fighting bulls through the streets of Pamplona in the first bull run of the San Fermin Festival. A local doctor said three people sustained head injuries. Others suffered an arm injury from falls during the 8 a.m. run, which lasted less than three minutes. This whole thing is a a nine-day fiesta, and it became world famous from Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, a classic, and it became one of Spain's most important tourist events. Now, in the nationally televised morning runs, participants dash along with six bulls and a number of steers down a narrow 930-yard course, less than 1,000 yards, from a holding pen to Pamplona's bullfighting ring. And the bulls then face matadors and almost always meet their maker in afternoon bullfights, so their only chance really to cause some damage is in these runs. So, can I ask you a question? Um, I've never read The Sun Also Rises what happened in that book that made people want to run with bulls? Well, you know that Ernest, Ernest Hemingway is, is considered the epitome, the pinnacle of macho bravery and, okay. and things like uh, that. Manly men. Manly men. And, <laughs> and so it was considered a test of courage uh-huh. to run with the bulls. Okay. And it is indeed a, uh, va- a 
validation of manhood uh-huh. okay. to do so. So, and so it's if you're a, manly enough to get in the street and possibly be skewered <laughs> by a bull, uh, then you are macho. Right. Not necessarily smart, but macho. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody was making an application to me to be uh, a possible future husband, and he wrote... Uh, Run, ran with bulls, uh, skewered six times in the leg. <laughs> I would probably throw his application away. Just well, so everybody would. knows. <laughs> but if you were wanting to have babies, he's probably has a high testosterone low, oh, level. Oh, but he's not bright. So <laughs> he's not bright. My kids are not going to go. They're going to. They're not going to. They're going to fail kindergarten. <laughs> but, they, but they will run with the bulls probably. Oh. <laughs> so anyhow, what does all this have to do with survival <laughs> medicine? You might ask. Rightly so. Well, simply that it's probably never wise to put yourself in harm's way voluntarily, whether it's in the annual bull run in Pamplona or doing... Good point, honey. Right, exactly. (laughs) Or doing activities of daily survival in your bug-out retreat. Always use hand protection, good boots, uh, eyewear, if you're chopping wood, for example, or anything else really that involves any risk or major exertion. And you know what? The family medic will thank you. Most people will injure themselves doing stuff they're not accustomed to. But even if you are an accomplished rail splitter like Abe Lincoln, splinters can get in your eye or any of a number of things can happen that can lead to injury. And if you're not careful cleaning up, infection. Now, speaking of infection, even in normal times, there are a lot of germs out there that might find you to be a hospitable host if you don't watch out. And summer is a special time to watch out with everybody spending much more time outdoors. Mm-hmm. Man, it is hot out, and you have a lot more to worry about than mosquitoes and Zika virus. This summer, there are going to be some germ hot spots that I guarantee you're going to be hanging out in before the fall. And you know what? They can get you really sick if you don't take precautions. Now, here's a few places that you should be careful if not completely avoid in some circumstances. And number one is going to be swimming pools. What's better on a hot day, right, than to take a little refreshing dip in the local swimming pool? Well, despite most pools being chlorinated to remove germs, some of them are relatively resistant to the chemical. One of these is a particularly bad one called cryptosporidium, causes a really bad diarrhea and can last in pool water for about 10 days. Also, public swimming pools are a big problem, especially if there are a lot of people in them. The CDC states that the majority of them contain E. coli, a bacteria, right? A bacteria found in human feces. Pretty nasty. Now, make sure that you don't contribute to the problem by showering before you get in and make sure to protect yourself to shower after you get out. Now, one thing that kids typically do when they're swimming pools is they drink the water. And I just want to say, guys, that's not a good idea. What a bad idea that is. Don't drink the water. And don't try to open your eyes under the water either because you can get bacteria in there. I'm not sure what you're going to do for your nose. They do have um, clips, those clips that pinch your nose so you don't get water inside your nose. You could wear a face mask. That would certainly protect those vulnerable areas. And if you've got a lot of cuts or scrapes on your body or anything that's open, I would probably stay out of the swimming pool because that's going to be another way that these infections can get into your body and cause serious trouble. Your skin is your armor, and if there's a cut or a 
some kind of chink in the armor, you know what? You're going to get yeah. an infection. If you do swim, however, like Joe just said, make sure that you shower thoroughly. If you could just rinse off by the pool, great. As soon as you get home, take a nice good shower with a good scrubbing down with some soap. And now, get into the crevices. <laughs> now, a lot of people don't have a swimming pool, but they do have a hot tub. Uh, that vacation rental in the mountains that you take your family to every year it comes with a hot tub. And what better way to relax those muscles after a day of hiking out in the beautiful, great outdoors? Sounds awesome. It does sound <laughs> awesome, doesn't it? Well, the bad news is that the warm waters of the jacuzzi, no matter where you go, uh-huh. aren't disinfected often enough to prevent bacteria from getting you sick. One particularly nasty bacteria you find in hot tubs is called Pseudomonas. And it gives a pretty nasty infection that leads to really bad skin rashes. Another place that you may choose to bathe would be the beach. What summer vacation doesn't include a trip to the beach? Well, salt water has its own set of organisms that can make you ill. And that damp beach towel that you're using several days in a row, that I guarantee is colonized with lots of them. But even MRSA infections have been identified, and those are antibiotic resistant. Make sure to wash and thoroughly dry your towels after spending a day in the water. Matter of fact, there's a very bad bacteria that you find in salt water called Vibrio vulnificus, and that causes a type of infection called necrotizing fasciitis. Not only does it cause an infection in the soft tissue, wherever it is that it happens to get in, but it actually travels along your body, and it can require you to get amputations because it is a difficult infection to get rid of. It is a really, really bad bug and it is in salt water mostly. Of course, the beach and public swimming pools, there's always a public restroom and public restrooms, I guarantee you, are germ central, especially in warm weather. But it's not just the toilet seat. The sink faucet handles, that is a big issue. I think those are dirtier than the toilet seats. Right, they actually you... did testing on toilet seats and showed they weren't as bad as the handles right. in the bathroom. Exactly, because you're going from the toilet to the handle to wash your hands, and so it's before you actually get to wash your and, hands. Okay, let's let's talk about women's bathroom. We sit, we, we don't do what you men usually do, and usually what comes out of us goes into the water and gets flushed down. Okay, that I I'm get it so far. But so far, I understand. So the toilet seat is not really getting dirty with the women. You know, ours isn't so bad, and most of us, and you should be covering it with toilet paper if you sit down. When you're wiping, there's a chance to get your hands a right. little messy, and then you go contaminated. to contaminated. And then you go to the sink handles, and you're touching that. Maybe there's not enough soap that comes out. Maybe the water's not good pressure. And so despite your efforts and your desire to clean your hands, you just can't clean them as well as they should be cleaned. Then you're going to touch the door handle. Mm-mm-mm. So the handles are the worst things to touch. So use paper towels. Right. I, I would either yeah, bring some to... napkins from the picnic table yeah. and use them to touch the sink handles and the door handle if because some of these places will not have paper towels or yeah. may have run out of paper or get, towels. Or bring some toilet paper out of the stall with you. Exactly. Leave that to the side. Wash your hands. Use the toilet paper to dry yourself. Keep that toilet paper in your hand and then open the door with that toilet paper so your hand does not come in contact with the door handle. Absolutely. That is, I think, one of the keys to preventing infection. Of course, it doesn't have to involve water to be a germ hot spot. I can tell you that playgrounds are a big problem. School's out and there are going to be a lot of kids at the playgrounds. They're going to be spending 
much more time there than during the the winter, certainly. So remember that swings and slides and monkey bars and all the other crazy things they have there are crawling with bacteria. And if there's a sandbox there, that could be the litter box of all sorts of in- interesting critters like rats and stray cats and, and pigeon the birds. droppings. Even, right. even if those animals are not going into the sand to eliminate them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the birds flying over it are pooping in it. Chances are there's some bird poop in there, even if other things have not crawled in. So that's kind of gross, and I'm really, really glad that I don't have little bitty kids right now. And when I do get grandchildren... I might make my own sandbox and keep it covered. <laughs> Not a bad idea. That's gross. <laughs> now, those bounce houses also, by the way, are full of bacteria as well. Remember that there was a study in New York. New York playgrounds had scary bacteria. 59 out of 60 that were ev- evaluated had scary bacteria like E. coli, salmonella, had shigella, which causes dysentery, and they even had viruses like hepatitis A. And these are all on a playground. That's right. Our poor children. I now, mean, I, really. I, I want to give a little hint. If you have a bounce house, obviously not one of those giant ones, and you're the one who's renting it for your child's birthday party, get inside there after it's blown up. Use a squirt bottle with straight-up rubbing alcohol and spray the heck out of that thing. Obviously, you want to do this the day before or or many hours before, and let it air out. Don't wash that off. Just let it dry. You'll at least cut down on some of these things. It's not going to make it perfect, but it's it's better than not doing anything at all. I agree 100%. Public transportation. Well, there are a lot of germaphobes out there, and if you're taking an airplane ride to a summer resort or just a bus to the beach, you have to know that germs exist on seats, on armrests, seat belts, tray tables, these are rarely disinfected correctly and or certainly not often enough. So germaphobes, you know what? You got something going there. I know. Car- carry the, some disinfectant wipes. Right. The, and think about the seatbelts. Who's cleaning the seatbelt snaps? Right. Nobody, nobody <laughs> thinks Every, that. And everyone has to touch it. You don't have a choice. When exactly. you get on a plane, you have to pick up the seatbelt and clip it, and you have to unclip it. So remember, you got to <laughs> decrease the colony count. It is a big issue, and you will not regret it if you keep those areas right. free of bacteria. We don't want to make people germaphobes. I really don't want to create paranoid people, but it's about being aware of where you can pick up infection and Doing simple things, like you've mentioned, can just help you stay healthier. Nobody wants to get sick, and you certainly don't want your children to get sick. So it's about being careful, not making it every waking thought and becoming obsessed about it. Still telling them to obsess about certain germ hotspots, and one of them... It's education, darling. ...is right in their backyard, their own garden. Oh, my goodness. Getting that vegetable and herb garden, flower garden together. Of course, everybody wants to do it. It gives you a... a, We do it. Yeah, I know. It gives you what a sense of accomplishment, right? Yes. But it also can give you an unhealthy dose of bacteria. There's lots of bacteria in the soil, not to mention the feces of insects and (laughs) animals. One infection, matter of fact, from cat feces in the soil is called toxoplasmosis. And that can be hazardous to pregnant ladies, young children, and anybody with a weakened immune system, toxoplasmosis could be a 
big issue for those people. Make sure that you wear garden gloves, cover those green thumbs of yours, and make sure you wash your hands and those green thumbs when you're done planting or weeding. Now, of course, you also in have in your backyard a grill, probably. Cases of foodborne illness, they're most common in the summer, and most of the time it's because you undercooked that meat in the grill, and food that's undercooked could have E. coli, salmonella, all sorts of bacteria. So make sure you cook meat evenly at 145 degrees, now 165 degrees for chicken and other poultry, and 160 degrees for ground meat. You might consider having a meat thermometer handy. It could be helpful. And wait three minutes before digging in to allow the heat to continue to do its job. Keep all meats nice and hot until it's time to eat. Don't let them sit out for very long afterwards. By the way, if you leave your grill outside, try not to. Store the grill indoors until you need it and make sure to always keep it covered until you use it. I mean really covered. Bird droppings that go on it, that can cause contamination. And if you don't clean your grill out... (laughs) Perfectly, you're going to find that small animals are going to... Get some nibble snacks. Get some irresistible <laughs> little leftovers. Mars- morsels. Little morsels of food. <laughs> One last thing, picnics. Picnic food starts out hygienic but becomes colonized with bacteria if it's left out for more than two hours, but less if it's 90 degrees or more. It doesn't last the two hours if it's 90 degrees. Use ice packs, cold packs to keep that coleslaw or potato salad below 40 degrees until you're ready to eat it. And don't forget that that bag of chips, other finger foods, they're likely going to be touched with multiple dirty hands as well. So consider single serving packs and no double dipping. What's double dipping? Double dipping is when you take your chip whether it's a potato chip or a tortilla chip, and then you dip it into sour cream or French dip or your salsa or your queso. Queso. Yes. And then you take a bite. And then you say, ooh, all my sauce is gone. I need more. And you stick that same chip. With all your mouth bacteria. Back in the dip. Do not double dip, folks. Absolutely. Not a good idea. And always have a... Not only a hand sanitizer on the picnic table, but cover the picnic table with a tablecloth. Yes. Absolutely. And keep the food covered because flies love to land in everything. And they lay eggs in it pretty bad. So <laughs> I think we're going to have to have indoor picnics this year, honey. <laughs> With air conditioning. Let me give you just a few more <laughs> summer safety tips. Don't forget that... Those cuts and scrapes that are almost impossible to escape if you're active outdoors need to be covered with a bandage of some sort. When you go go through the skin, bacteria can go into your bloodstream, can cause major problems. If a bandage gets wet, dry the skin before you replace it with a fresh one. That's important. And remember what an infected wound looks like. It's red, it's swollen, and it's somewhat warm to the touch. Now, antibiotic ointment, it's great. may help prevent infection, but remember it doesn't do anything to cure an already existing one. Make sure you get that checked out by a medical professional if you have the signs of infection that I just mentioned. Of course, mosquitoes are big issues. They could transmit viruses like Zika or dengue virus, but scratching the itch with dirty fingernails can cause infection with bacteria. Make sure you use mosquito repellents like DEET or oil of lemon eucalyptus if you're outside during mosquito season. Now, prevent sunburn by staying in or providing shade with, say, Beach umbrellas. Apply sunscreen always about 15 minutes before you go outside. Apply it thickly and reapply it 
frequently during the day. If you're going to use mosquito repellent and sunscreen, use the mosquito repellent on top of the sunscreen, not the other way around. The sunscreen has to absorb into your skin. You know, that is a good point. I don't think most people realize that. Sunscreen first, then the mosquito repellent. Absolutely. Makes sense. Okay. Absolutely. Now, if Good to know. Now, you might think all of the things that we just mentioned are a great reason to stay indoors this summer. Truthfully, a little preparation, a little common sense is going to go a long way to staying healthy and enjoying the warm summer months. Get out there. Enjoy your life. Hey, we're really glad to have our good friend Tom Martin, head of American Preppers Network, and a bunch of other stuff. This guy has his hands in all sorts of things, prepper and prepper-related, and he has done a great deal for the preparedness community, and we'd like to talk to him a little bit about his new show. He has a new podcast on the Prepper Broadcasting Network. Please welcome Tom Martin. Hey, Tom. Hey, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Hey, tell me a little bit about your new show. So, anyway, I started a new podcast. It's called Salt Strikes, uh, based on uh, the philosophies of Ayn Rand and her book, Atlas Shrugs, with John Galt. And it's a libertarian talk show, news talk show. We talk about politics and news, but what's different is Rather than talking about the problems and focusing on the problems, we try to focus on the solutions. And so a lot of those solutions for a lot of people is, you know, how to get out of debt, how to start their own business, how to become successful in, in uh, you, know, be, you know, starting a new career. Um, basically just solutions as an alternative to going the socialist route of, getting welfare and government assistance. We want to teach people how to become independent and self-reliant in their own businesses and in their own careers. So who have you had on your show? What's that? Who have you had on your show lately? Okay, so I've um, interviewed several people from our own um, our own email list, our own membership. Oh. Um, but recently I had a guest that was really interesting. Um, his name was Glenn Darren Stewart, and he's from Norway. Wow. And he, he started out, he, well, he was born in Scotland, and then he started out homeless, living in the streets. He was born and raised in the streets. Um, and he grew up as an alcoholic, even as young as 13. My gosh. Um, with, with, with alcohol and drug problems and everything and then one day he had a dream about the world ending and that's what got him interested in prepping and he moved and this was when he was a young adult he moved up to Norway um, to try to live a, a sustainable life and while he was up there um, living on the streets up there as well he uh, met an unemployed journalist who talked to him about doing what they call street magazines. And so what he did is he went out and interviewed a lot of homeless people and people that he already knew on the streets, the people that had uh, drug addictions and, and other rejected social groups. He uh, interviewed them and wrote stories about them and took pictures and, and got a bunch of volunteers together to help 
um, produces magazine, and then they went to a church that funded their initial printing and publishing of this magazine. They took the magazine and went out to a lot of the homeless people in the streets and had them selling the magazine. Oh. And so um, they sold their first couple thousand copies, and they went back to the church, and the church funded them to produce um, several thousand more copies. And then within the first six weeks, they sold 70,000 copies of this magazine. And it's now one of the most successful magazines in Norway. Um, they got endorsed by the Norwegian government um, and, and the king of Norway. Oh, my gosh. And so, uh, yeah, he now has a very successful street magazine. You can't buy the magazine in stores. You can't get a subscription for it. You have to buy it from the people in the streets, and it gives the homeless people um, basically their own business an opportunity to make money and get off of the street. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, he's doing... That's the kind of stuff we talk about. Well, well, that guy is certainly doing not only a a public service, but really shows that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps if you you have some drive and uh, are... Are willing to work at it. Well, I, that that is terrific. Uh, we are going to be on your show. I, I understand a little later on this month. Yes, exactly. So on uh, the twenty, that's two weeks from now, the twenty third. Right. Saturday. Yeah. If you want to hear. Right. Right. If you want to hear about our. Our story. We're we're happy. We're going to be uh, talking about that with uh, you, Tom. That'll be on PrepperBroadcasting.com at um, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. PrepperBroadcasting.com. That'll be Saturday the 23rd. Well, that is awesome. What other projects do you have going on? Anything else ha- happening I should know about? Well, I got that. I have the newsletter. You can subscribe to the APM newsletter at AmericanPreppersNetwork.com. And the APM blog. And then we've got the American Preppers Network Facebook page. Um, just go on Facebook and search American Preppers Network. Um, so mostly it's the APN and uh, the new podcast that I got going and what I put most of my time in. Well, you're doing a lot for the preparedness community and hopefully getting some more people interested in preparedness. You can get a, give us uh, a little more Populate, a little more percentage of that population of people that uh, are going to be ready for times of trouble. And if there's anyone that's helping people do that, it's you, Tom. And thank you very much. Thank you guys for having me on. All right. That was Tom Martin, guys. Hey, you know, last time we were talking about sprains and strains. Yeah, and and fractures. The lovely nurse Amy was talking about natural methods to deal with some of these issues. And, and we didn't have enough time. Right. So... <laughs> Here she is with some natural ways to deal with some orthopedic injuries. The first herb I want to talk about is called comfrey, and it has a nickname called knitbone. Well, that kind of makes sense since it's for healing and it helps to heal the bones together. So what is comfrey? It's a perennial growing up to three feet with thick leaves and bell-like white to pink or even sometimes mauve flowers. It is, it's an indigenous European plant. It grows in all temperate regions of the world, including Western Asia, North America, 
and Australia. It thrives in moist, marshy places, which is probably why it's doing fairly well here in my herbal garden because it's very moist and it rains all the time here. So I've got some really nice comfrey and it can be grown from seed in the spring or by root division in the autumn and the leaves and flowering tops are harvested in the summer and the root is unearthed in the autumn. Comfrey contains two constituents, one of which helps repair damaged tissue and the other one is a significant anti-inflammatory, which both of those would really be helpful in sprains and strains and broken bone healing process. So those are really good. There is something that is shown to be highly toxic to the liver in comfrey it's not found in the aerial parts, which are the parts above the ground, but it's concentrated in the root. So the rule of thumb is don't ingest anything made from the root. So comfrey root should not be used internally at all, and there's worries about the safety. So just be careful about that. The herb has been used to treat stomach ulcers irritable bowel syndrome, and a range of respiratory conditions, including bronchitis. And the one that we're really talking about is Comfrey's ability to promote the healing of bruises, sprains, fractures, and broken bones. And this is actually in writings and passed down from hundreds and thousands of years that it does help heal these much, much faster. So this is something that's been around for a long time. It's been used for this issue and it's something you should consider growing in your herbal garden. It encourages ligaments and bones to knit together firmly. A comfrey compress should be applied immediately, should be applied immediately to a sprained ankle and it can significantly reduce the severity of the injury. It can help reduce swelling. It helps to heal bruises much, much faster, and again, encourage healing of broken bones much faster. For skin problems, you can use comfrey oil or an ointment to treat acne and boils and to relieve cirrhosis. It's also valuable in the treatment of scars. The next herb I want to talk about is arnica. Unfortunately, I can't grow arnica, but I sure hope that you can. It's an aromatic perennial growing to one foot. It has downy egg-shaped leaves and bright yellow daisy-like flowers. Arnica grows in mountain woods and pastures in Central Europe, Siberia, Canada, and the Northwest U.S. Its flowers are harvested when in full bloom and the rhizomes after the plant has died back in the autumn. So the parts you use are the flowers and the rhizome. Arnica has been used extensively in European folk medicine and throughout history. It's an effective ointment and compresses are used for bruises, sprains, and muscle pain. Arnica speeds healing and increases the local blood supply. It's also an anti-inflammatory. Arnica is poisonous. I want to emphasize that. Do not use it on open, broken skin and do not ingest it internally. In other words, don't put it in your mouth at all. You can only apply it to unbroken skin. Generally, it is mixed in with other oils. I've seen it mixed with St. John's wort. I've also seen it as a salve, which is very effective for pain. And it's been used for 
rheumatoid arthritis, for uh, bone pain, for joint pain, for uh, sore, achy muscles, as well as the sprains and strains and, and broken bones. But again, be very careful. It cannot be applied to broken skin. It is poisonous. But if you live in the area where you can grow Arnica, it would be an extremely helpful herb to have for these types of pains. I've used it myself uh, on my knee, on my ankle. I've used it on my shoulder, my lower back. It's very, very helpful. Sorry for that noise in the back. Um, our yard was being mowed. <laughs> so bad timing for that. Um, the next one I'd like to talk about is wintergreen. A lot of people think about wintergreen as very cooling and soothing. Well, sounds pretty good if you've got some pain. So what is wintergreen? It's an aromatic. It is a low-lying shrub that grows up to six inches tall. It has leathery oval leaves and small white or pale pink bell-shaped flowers and brilliant red fruit. I bet a lot of people don't know that about wintergreen. Its habitat is native to North America, which is fantastic. Wintergreen is found in woodland and exposed mountainous areas. The leaves and fruit are gathered in the summer. The parts used are the leaves, the fruit, and of course the essential oil. Wintergreen was popular with Native Americans who used it for treating back pain, rheumatism, fever, headaches, sore throats, and many other conditions. Samuel Thompson, founder of the 19th century physio-medicalist movement, <laughs> combined it with hemlock to treat severe fluid retention. Wintergreen leaves have been used as a substitute for tea for example, during the Revolutionary War. Another fun fact. Wintergreen is strongly anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, and soothing to the digestive system. It's an effective remedy for rheumatic and arthritic problems, and taken as a tea can relieve flatulence and colic. The essential oil in the form of a liniment or ointment brings relief to inflamed, swollen, or sore muscles, or ligaments, and joints. And can also prove valuable in treating neurological problems such as sciatica, which is pain that results from pressure on a nerve in your lower spine area. The oil is sometimes used to treat cellulitis, a bacterial infection causing skin to become inflamed. The cautions, people who are sensitive to aspirin should not take wintergreen internally. Oil of wintergreen should never be taken internally nor applied to the skin of children, even diluted, anyone under the age of 12 unless under professional supervision. So there's three herbs. You have arnica, comfrey, and wintergreen. Please think about growing those in your garden. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour. Don't forget to fill those holes in your medical supplies by going to store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again.